You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Today is going to be my, my last sermon for a few weeks. Uh, many of you know that typically in the summer, I take about four weeks off from preaching. Um, and I, I, think, I think it benefits us in a number of ways for me to take a break from preaching for a few weeks. Number one, it gives opportunity for some other folks who have a, a gift to be able to utilize that gift and, uh, and, and to hear from them and allow God to use them. Um, secondly, it benefits the entire church that you are hearing from different voices other than just me. And I try, to, I try to do my best to sprinkle that in throughout the year. I, haven't, I don't normally do really well in the spring. I've been preaching every week since I got back from Israel. So I'm definitely due for a break there. But um, it's good for us to hear from different voices, different perspectives. Uh, God speaks to multiple people and has gifted multiple people, not just myself. Every one of you is gifted in some way. And some have a unique gift of preaching and teaching. And we want to make room and space for that. Uh, but thirdly, it benefits me to just rest and refresh myself. It's been a good rhythm for me these last few years to take about a month off from preaching in the summer. Most of you guys go on vacation anyway, so I'm like, man, if they're not going to come, I'm not going <laughs> to waste time. Um, but, uh, but it does give me some time to kind of reset my, my rhythm. I'm going to be going on a couple trips. We're going to Louisiana the middle of this month, and I'll be going to Columbia at the end of the month for a, for a missions trip with uh, Linda Steele and Danny Martinez. You're going, right? All right. And um, so I'll have two interpreters. That'll be great. But, um, but also I'll start taking a class uh, in the middle of June at Fuller again. So, you know, a lot of stuff going on. It helps me to kind of reset my rhythm. And uh, so I'm excited. We've got four great speakers over the next four consecutive weeks. You can find kind of the lineup there. It's listed in your bulletin. But today is going to be my last sermon until uh, July. And every so often when I preach, you know, I kind of deviate from the normal rhythm of preaching from the gospel reading of the week or, or a particular series that I've been putting together. And sometimes I'll just preach a one-off sermon, just a standalone sermon, just something that's been on my heart for a while to share. And so that's what we're going to do today. This morning, I'm going to do the impossible. And I'm going to preach through the entire book of Revelation in one sermon and get you out in time for lunch. You know, of all of the books of the Bible, Revelation is probably the one that drives the most interest, and it's also undoubtedly the one that causes the most confusion. And so what we're going to do today, I am literally, I'm going to walk you through the 22 chapters of Revelation, and along the way, I'm going to give you seven stepping stones that will help you find your footing in this book. Seven stepping stones. You might even get ready to write these down as I give them throughout the sermon. Um, I will tell you, we're not going to get nitty-gritty into the details. There's, there are going to be things in Revelation that I'm not going to bring up just for time's sake. We're just going to do a broad overview. That's why the title of this sermon is Revelation from a Bird's Eye View. So we're not going to get too detailed today, but I do want to give you a couple book recommendations if you're wanting to dive deeper into the book of Revelation. There are, frankly, a lot of lousy, unhelpful books on the book of Revelation and the end times. But there are some that I think are really good. They're usually not the bestsellers, 
but they're written by actual New Testament scholars who have studied these things their entire lives, and they can help us. So I want to give you two book recommendations in particular. Uh, the first one is by New Testament scholar Michael Gorman, and it's called Reading Revelation Responsibly. Reading Revelation Responsibly. It is superb. It is outstanding. And I recommend it to you. The second book I want to recommend to you, it's one that I'm right in the middle of right now. It's, it's a new book. It just came out within the three or four, last three or four months. And it's also by New Testament scholar Scott McKnight. It's called Revelation for the Rest of Us. And actually, if you only get one of those two, get that one. I am just enjoying that book. And it is so accessible, so readable. Every one of you will read that book and be able to understand uh, what he's writing. So Revelation for the rest of us, really helpful book if you want to get down into the details of Revelation. So as we walk through it today, what will be helpful for you today is, is if you have a Bible in front of you, and actually all of you should because even in the seat back, there are Bibles that you can utilize. If you would just kind of have the Bible open to Revelation, and as we zip through it, that's going to help you kind of find your bearings because we are going to be moving fast today. In fact, there are times when we're going to be cranking it up to light speed and, and a time or two where we're going to crank it all the way up to ludicrous speed. So, so this having the Bible open in front of you will help you. We'll also have all of the relevant passages on the screen. So let's get started. Y'all ready to get started? All right, I got my work cut out for me. I'm going to tell you, uh, based on last night, preaching this sermon last night, I probably bit off more than I can chew, but I've kind of slimmed down the sermon a little bit. Let's get started. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It begins like this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So that's our opening statement there in this wonderful letter, this mysterious book. Um, the, the word revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, and it means an unveiling. It's like a curtain being pulled back, something being revealed that was previously hidden. And right here in this opening line of Revelation is where I'm going to give you the first stepping stone today. So this is the first stepping stone, number one. You can write it down, number one. First stepping stone, Revelation is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It is not the unveiling of the Antichrist, quote-unquote. It's not the unveiling of the end times. What this book wants to do more than anything else is it wants to reveal Jesus to you in a fresh way so that you're captured by his glory and his beauty and his mystery and his wonder that we sang about just a moment ago. That's what the book is about. And hold on to that because as you get into this book and you start getting lost and you start getting confused, you see all these seals and bowls and trumpets and angels and horses and beasts with multiple heads and multiple horns and, and locusts with human faces and all this crazy imagery, it feels like you're walking through a set from a sci-fi movie or something, and it gets really confusing. Just remember, just tell yourself, remind yourself, this book is revealing Jesus to us. That's what it wants to do. And in chapter 1, John sees a vision of Jesus, and Jesus instructs John to write a message to seven 
churches, seven individual messages to seven real churches that existed in the first and second centuries uh, in, the, in Western Turkey. They are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and Laodicea. Did I miss one? I think Philadelphia. I might have said one twice, but those are the seven. Um, so in chapters two and three, we find the content of these seven messages to these seven churches. And then you'll see in chapter four that John looks and he sees an open door into heaven and he hears a voice inviting him to come. Now here we see the second stepping stone, number two. Stepping stone number two, Revelation is a storybook. And it's a story that really begins in chapter four. So again, chapter one is this opening vision John has where he sees Jesus. Chapters two and three are the content of these seven messages. But chapter four is really where the story begins. And so Revelation is a story, and it has a very clear beginning. It has a very clear ending. But it's the big middle of Revelation that gets confusing to a lot of people. And one of the reasons, not the only reason by far, but one of the reasons why Revelation can be confusing to people is because even though it is a story, it's not a story that's told in a straightforward, linear, chronological way. Rather, the book of Revelation is a lot like that TV series from a few years ago called Lost. How many Lost fans, fanatics, you guys watched the series Lost? Um, my kids are now teenagers, and just this spring, I let them watch the whole series. So they would watch like four episodes a week. Uh, and they watched the entire thing and loved it. So it's kind of fresh on my mind. There are probably recent, more recent examples of what I'm talking about. But the series Lost, first of all, it's, a li it's like Revelation in the sense that there's all kinds of craziness that happens. There's all this crazy imagery and symbolism and, and metaphor. But also, the series Lost just jumps around. Like there, it doesn't, it's not told in a linear way. There are flashbacks. There are flash forwards. And there are flash sideways. And you really have to pay attention to, to get your bearing. The same thing is true of Revelation. I, wanted, I want you to know going into it, there are flashbacks, there are flash forwards, there are flash sideways. And, and John, it's almost like John himself is overwhelmed as he's telling it. And so he's not even going to tell you, okay, now I'm flashing back. He's just hoping you're going to follow. So, so we need to remember that this story does jump around quite a bit. The best way to understand Revelation, think of it as like, imagine John walking into this darkened, dome-like structure, sort of like the one on Hollywood Way and Empire Avenue. You guys have seen that, I'm sure. Um, I don't know what's happening with that, but, but imagine John walking into that dome-like structure on Hollywood Way, and he's standing right in the middle of it, it's pitch black, and all of a sudden, this video clip uh, bursts onto the ceiling, at least part of the ceiling of this dome. And so he's watching this, he's experiencing it actually. There's all these sounds and lasers and images jumping around. So he's trying to, he's trying to record it. And just as this one stops on the other part of the ceiling, now there's another video image. And so he's watching that, it's swirling around and he's trying to capture it. And just as that's going, he hears a, a voice projecting from behind him. And, and so there's all of these effects and sounds and images that are kind of like, all-encompassing and he's experiencing this 360 you know and 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 he's trying to capture it and you'll notice throughout revelation john will say things like and then i saw this and then i heard this it's john's way of telling us 
I'm seeing something different now, you know? He's kind of overwhelmed, and he's, he's just trying to capture it in written word. So Revelation is a story that has a clear beginning, clear ending. But the big middle of Revelation, it's sort of like a montage of video clips, if you will. Experiences is probably the best word, visions. And you can't piece them together in a chronological way. Remind yourself that. Then into chapter 5, we're introduced to one of the main elements of the story, which is a scroll. And John opens with, then I saw, and he sees this scroll, but unfortunately on the earth, no one is capable of breaking the seven seals. They're, they're, this scroll is all sealed up, seven seals, and nobody can break the seals. And for whatever reason, John gets really emotional about this, and he starts to weep. So let's look at this passage in Revelation 5, verses 5 and 6. John says, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. Verse 6, Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing. Notice the lion has morphed into a lamb. The lion is standing as if it had been slaughtered with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now typically people, their attention kind of gets seized by this scroll and these mysterious seven seals, but that's, that's to miss the big point. And we see in chapter 5 that the main character of the story is the lamb, and that's stepping stone number three. This is our third stepping stone, number three. Revelation is about the lamb. That's what the book is about. It's a storybook, and the main character is the lamb, and there's no mistaking the symbolism here. This lamb that looks like it's been slain is Jesus. You remember early in the Gospel of John, John the baptizer, he points to Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now here we have in Revelation, John the Revelator, different guy, he sees this image of a lamb that he's telling us about and it speaks to us of Jesus who was slain. And we see this lamb in chapter 5 being worshipped. Then in chapter 6, the lamb begins to break open the seals of this scroll. And every, every time one of these seals is broken, all hell breaks loose on the earth. And horrible things begin to happen. Now, I'm going to do my best this morning to avoid just giving you speculation. I'm going to try to just give you the nuts and bolts. Every so often, I'll, I'll try to give you a little bit of direction that, that I want to offer to you. I'm not, it's not a hill I'm going to die on or anything, but I want to try to offer you a little bit of perspective. But here's where, you know, sometimes people have questions. What are these seven seals? And when they're broken, these horrible cataclysmic things happen on the earth. What is that describing? Is this describing a past event? Is this something that's happening ongoing in the present? Is it something in the future? And I would just offer to you this. I, I think it's probably all three. Remember, this story is being told to us not in a chronological way. And this breaking, open, this breaking opening of these seals, this has been ongoing, I think, for 2,000 years. Think about this. The early Christians, the original recipients of this letter, for them, all hell was breaking loose in their lives. These early mothers and fathers in the faith, going back to the 60s AD and the 90s AD, 1900 plus years ago, they were living during a time of intense 
persecution. Under the reign of Nero, under the reign of Domitian again. It was intense, rampant persecution. Some of these people were brutally murdered. Some of them had to watch their own children brutally murdered because of their faith. So for them, like the four horsemen of the apocalypse had already been released in their lives. They were experiencing all hell breaking loose. Nevertheless, again, don't lose sight of the main character here. Because what's important is not so much these seals that are being broken. What's important is the Lamb, who is sovereign over it all and ultimately has the final say. Then in chapter 7, we see a vision of 144,000 and a great multitude. This is just a picture of Israel and the Gentile nations who are gathered together in worship. Then in chapter 8, we see the seventh seal is broken. And in chapters 8 and 9, there are angels in heaven that begin to blow seven trumpets. And every time one of these trumpets is blown, horrible cataclysmic events happen on the earth, very similar to what happened in chapter 6 with these seals that were broken, which I, I find interesting. So there are these cataclysmic events taking place on the earth, including the killing of one-third of humankind. One-third of humankind. And of course, this is where people have their questions. They want to know, when is this going to happen? When is one-third of humanity going to be killed? And I'm going to be honest with you today because I have no books to sell you on Revelation. We don't know. There is a lot about the book of Revelation we simply don't know. It's a mysterious book. And I want to give you this as our fourth stepping stone. Number four, Revelation is a book of sacred mysteries and we need to remind ourselves of that over and over and over again you know even the early christians the early church when they were whenever they were assembling the new testament you know very early on by the end of the second century the 27 books of the new testament had gained wide acceptance they were universally recognized as holy scripture and the book of revelation was included in that long before it was ever officially canonized as the new testament these books, including Revelation, were recognized. This is inspired, God-breathed, sacred, holy scripture. And yet, even in recognizing that, our early church fathers and mothers recognized this is a confusing book. Like, we can't figure this thing out. And there was a lot of debate about Revelation because it was so mysterious, and they understood that. But they knew and sensed enough to know this is spirit-inspired scripture. And so it's important for us to approach Revelation in a humble posture. And so often, I don't think people do that. There are so many folks, especially those that write books on Revelation and they sell millions and millions of copies and they make a lot of money. You know, they pass themselves off as these experts and it's almost like you read their book, it's like they know the book of Revelation more than God does. They could tell you what the third toe and the left foot of the beast stands for. And they are absolutely certain they've got it right. And they, they, can, they can take everything in the book of Revelation and match it to today's newspaper headlines. And I'm going to tell you, throughout my life, they always have gotten it wrong. They always get it wrong. Now, they're certain, but for all their certainty, they're, they're wrong. I think, it's, I think it's important that when it comes to Revelation, we sort out what we can, but in the end, we hold our opinions loosely. And we come to this book humbly. Understandest thou these things? One thing that will help you tremendously is to recognize that all of the numbers in Revelation are symbolic. How much of the numbers? All of the numbers are symbolic. And all of the imagery 
is symbolic. It's all symbolic. So, for example, when John writes that one-third of all of humankind is going to be, be killed, this is an apocalyptic way of saying a whole bunch of people are going to be killed. But he puts a number on it in order to help us visualize it. And I think what John is seeing is, is what's been happening for hundreds and hundreds of years, and that is large chunks of people being killed on the earth in a variety of ways. So it's a book of sacred mysteries, nevertheless, and this is one of them. Then in chapter 10, John sees a new vision. He sees a mighty angel described much like Jesus, and the angel is saying that when the seventh trumpet blows, the mystery of God will be revealed. So this is a book of sacred mystery, but some of the mysteries get revealed to us, and this is one of them. So let's look at Revelation 11, verse 15. It says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he shall reign forever. There we go. So you recognize that from Handel's Messiah. But that's the mystery of God, is the kingdom of God. You know, when Jesus came the first time 2,000 years ago, he inaugurated, he, in, he ushered in the kingdom of God, the reign of God on the earth. And all of his teaching, all of his stories and parables were about the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God is like. He began his ministry with this announcement, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He taught people, it's in your midst. The kingdom of God is around you. It's right in front of you. It's right here. Whenever you and I listen and receive the teaching of Christ, and come under and receive it and obey his teaching and submit to King Jesus, we are embodying the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is in us and working through us and even expanding in the earth. But the Christian witness is that there is coming a time our reigning king is going to return. And when Jesus returns, and I believe it can happen at any moment, when he returns, he will establish the kingdom of God in complete fullness. And everything that is not consistent with God's vision for humankind in the world, it will be completely, eternally eradicated from the earth. And everything that is consistent with his character and his vision for humankind in the world itself is going to be beautified, refined, perfected, and eternalized. And God's will will be done in perfect and perfection for all of eternity, heaven and earth will merge together. We'll come to that at the very end. But that's what Revelation wants you to know because that's what our hope is rooted in. That's what we long for. The kingdom of God where all is right, all shall be well. Perfect justice, perfect healing, perfect wholeness, and all of this sin and evil will be done away with for good. Everything's made right. Hallelujah. All right, everybody take a deep breath. Guess what? We're halfway through. <laughs> Let's crank it up to light speed. Chapter 12, we see a, a new vision. And we see a vision of a dragon who we are told is the devil. Now again, this is a book of sacred mysteries, but some of these mysteries get revealed. And here we are told that this dragon, we know who it is because we're told it's the devil. And this chapter, chapter 12, is actually a flashback. If you, if you just read chapter 12 without any commentaries or age, you just read it, you'll see very clearly that in an allegorical way, chapter 12 is looking back at the birth of Christ. It's telling us the story of the birth of Christ in a symbolic way. But this dragon is revealed as one of the villains. 
And what we see after the dragon in the ensuing chapters is we see a series of beasts. And in chapter 13, there's a beast that comes up out of the sea. Remember that. The beast comes out of the sea. And this dragon and the two beasts that follow, these are the villains of the story. So Revelation is a storybook. It has a main character, the hero, the protagonist, who is the lamb, Jesus Christ. But there are also villains. There's their antagonists, and that is the dragon and these beasts. So let's look at Revelation 13, verse 1 and 2. John says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, and on its horns were ten diadems, and on its heads were blasphemous names. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave it his power and his throne and great authority. So here we see that dragon, the serpent from chapter 12, that harkens back to Genesis uh, 2. Um, We see this dragon giving authority to the beast. And now these beasts become the main villains in the story. You'll see in Revelation, the main conflict is not so much between the lamb and the dragon, it's between the lamb and these beasts for the most part. And this is where people really get curious. Who is this beast? What is this? What's the identity of this beast? Is this the quote-unquote antichrist figure that we always hear so much about? You you read all these books, you hear all these sermons and teachings on the end times, and a lot of the focus is placed on this supposed antichrist figure. They imagine uh, this, they conflate the antichrist with this beast, and they imagine this beast as an individual who's going to rise up at the end of world history. He's going to rise up on the world stage. We, we, you know, people envision this beast as becoming uh, some type of major political leader or leader in the world of commerce, and and it's going to lead the whole world astray. And so in my lifetime, and even before my lifetime, in the recent decades, people have gotten obsessed with this antichrist hysteria. And and, and every single major world leader you can think of at one time has worn the antichrist tag from someone, you know, going back to Henry Kissinger. You know, some of you remember that. Uh, Ronald Wilson Reagan. All, all All three of his names have six letters, 666. Um, I'm serious, man. That was like the reason that was given. Um, the number of his name. Um, then Bill Clinton. I remember that very clearly. I remember, I remember Barack Obama for sure. I remember Donald Trump even now. And, and a number of, number of different major world leaders, Saddam Hussein, and, and all of these different folks have sometimes been tagged with his Antichrist label. I want to help you here this morning. When you listen to actual New Testament scholarship, not popular level level authors who make millions of dollars and produce movies and all of that, but when you actually read and listen to people who have studied the original language in apocalyptic literature, and they've made an entire life out of studying this piece of literature, they give us a very different picture of what's happening here. Now, there is a sense in which this beast-like figure is timeless, There are all kinds of beast-like leaders and structures that have been on the stage of the world for the last 2,000 plus years. And there also is a possibility, I'm not going to take this away from you, is there a possibility that at the end of time when Jesus does return, there will be some end-time beast or something to that effect, some end-time leader? I, I wouldn't negate that. I wouldn't take that from you. But I will tell you this. When it comes to New Testament scholars studying this piece of literature, there is a growing consensus for them that this beast 
was the Roman Empire. It was Caesar and all who follow him. Now, that doesn't mean that this beast concept is not replicated throughout history. But first of all, the word antichrist, it might surprise you, it's not found in the book of Revelation. We get Revelation, uh, we, we get the word antichrist from John's letters, First and Second John, and he speaks of a spirit of antichrist, but it often gets conflated with this beast. But for New Testament scholars, they, there's a growing consensus that for them, for the early Christians, for the original recipients of this letter, and remember, it was God's word to them before it ever became God's word to us. And for the original audience, when they hear about this beast-like figure that looks like a leopard with bear's feet and a lion's mouth, they knew what John was talking about. This is code language for Rome. I'll show you uh, more evidence of that in just a moment. But that's where I want to give you the fifth stepping stone, number five. Stepping stone number five. Revelation records for us the conflict between the lamb and the beast. That's the showdown. We got a conflict between the lamb and the beast. And John wants you to use your imagination. This is like a, this is a first century political cartoon is what this is. And he wants you to envision this in your mind. He wants you to see a wrestling ring, the squared circle. And in one corner, we have this cute little cuddly lamb, not even a full grown sheep, a little baby lamb. You know, the kind of creature that nursery rhymes are written about. Mary had a little lamb. So you got this cute little cuddly lamb in one corner, but in the other corner, we have this monstrous, monstrous without a T on the end, monstrous, demonic, menacing beast. Think of like Godzilla. You got Godzilla in the other corner, this huge monster breathing out fire. And, and as you picture that in your mind's eye, the instinct is to say, man, this is not a fair fight. Godzilla could swoop down and with one bite, that lamb is toast. But the irony of the story of Revelation is that the lamb defeats the beast. The lamb wins in the end. That's the absurdity, the irony that's built into the story. And so the message, and it's an enduring message to followers of the lamb in every time, in every culture. This is how Revelation benefits everyone who reads it for the last 2,000 years, is that followers of the Lamb, we recognize that even though we live during a time and in the midst of a culture, it's a beast-like culture, it's a beast-like monstrous society, and sometimes it feels like the claws of this beast-like culture are, are uh, being driven into the flesh of the church, but we don't have to lose heart, we don't have to lose courage, because we are assured that the Lamb conquers in the end. That's the point. So the lamb wins, but the lamb does not win by slaying his enemies. He wins by being slain. And we're to follow in the way of the lamb. It's the path of victory. So let's look at Revelation 13, verse 10. If you are to be taken captive, into captivity you go. If you kill with the sword, with the sword you must be killed. Remember Jesus said in Luke, whenever he's arrested in the garden and Peter cuts off the guy's ear, Jesus says, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And it's being repeated here. But he finishes with this. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. John is recording this whole thing because he wants to infuse you and I with courage no matter how dark it is outside. He wants to fill you with courage, and that's stepping stone number six. I believe it's six, right? Number six. Number six, Revelation is a book of encouragement. 
it is not a book of prediction. So many people try to take this book and draw connections to current events all the time. It's been happening throughout my entire life, and they are always wrong. Because that's not what Revelation is trying to get you to do. It's not a book that's trying to get you to spur on and, and try, to, try to predict future events. What Revelation really wants to do is help you to reframe the present and look at it from an eternal perspective. And that's why I think Revelation is actually, ironically, it may be the most relevant book for us right now in our, in our day and age. It's so relevant for us, not because I think it's connecting to all these current events that happen all the time, but simply because Revelation is encouraging us to be faithful and to endure during times of cultural chaos and upheaval. Let's keep going through the book. Chapter 14, we see 144,000 people who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Remember, the numbers are always symbolic. Don't make too much of the numbers. Then in chapter 14, we see angels proclaiming the gospel, calling people to turn away from the beast and return to God. In chapter 15, we see more angels who are carrying out the wrath of God. And in chapter 15, we see people in worship. So let's look at this text here, Revelation 15, verses 2 and 3. John says, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had, been con those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and amazing are your deeds, Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. All of these songs we sang earlier echo these concepts, these truths. So this is where I want to give you the final stepping stone of Revelation number seven. Revelation is a book of worship. Everywhere you turn in this book, people are gathered around the throne of God in worship. All right. Grab the hand of the person next to you. We're going to ludicrous speed. You ready? <laughs> Chapter 16, we see seven bowls that are poured out. Again, you're going to notice the similarities. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Horrible things happen. It very well may be describing the same set of circumstances from using different imagery, just like Joseph in Genesis. He sees, he sees the stalks of corn. He sees the skinny cows, but it's communicating the same message. It's very, very possible that that's what's happening. It's just a flash sideways, in other words. Chapter 17, we see a vision of a prostitute who's riding on the beast. And there's all these different images and horns and heads that are on the beast. And it's interesting where it says the seven horns are seven hills that the woman sits on. Now, remember what I said earlier, all of this imagery, don't take it literal. It's symbolic. And in this case, I really hope it's symbolic. You know, I mean, if, if, it's, if, if we're to take that literally, we're either talking about seven tiny hills or we're talking about a really large woman, right? <laughs> but again, this shows us that for these original readers, the beast was Rome because Rome is a city that sits on seven hills, now, that's not to say that it's a concept that doesn't replicate throughout history, but for the original audience, that's what's being referred to. But the point is that those who follow the beast and those who receive the script of Antichrist power structures, they are making war against the Lamb. That's the point. Chapter 18, we hear about the fall of Babylon. That's, that's the city of the beast. It's a city that's under his influence, the, the power of the beast. And in chapter 19, we see a beautiful picture of worship in heaven at the final defeat of the beast. We see a rider on a white horse, 
again, a picture of the Lamb who is Jesus, and he's coming riding on a white horse as a sign of ultimate victory. And I just want to point out to you, very important, the sword is not in his hand. The sword is in his mouth. And the robe that he's wearing is dipped in blood, but it's not the blood of his enemies. It's his own blood because that's how he wins. He doesn't conquer his enemies by slaying them. He conquers them by being slain on their behalf. That's how the lamb wins. Then in chapter 20, we see the capture and the imprisonment of Satan, the dragon, for a thousand years. And again, I want to submit to you this thousand years, just like all these numbers, this is a symbolic concept. Uh, these numbers are symbolic. I don't want to get too deep. I do have an idea on what's happening here, but it just speaks of this dragon being imprisoned, being bound for, for a long period of time. And many people call this the millennial reign, and there's all kinds of opinions on that. We won't get into it today. Chapter 21, we see what the end of the world looks like. So for those of you that want to know what the end of the world looks like, it gives it to you right here. It gives you a picture of the end of the world, and it's a picture of new creation, all being made right. You know, a lot of times we think about the end of the world, and we imagine just a bunch of death and destruction. But ultimately, when God steps in and intervenes and makes it right, he gives us the picture and the vision right here in chapter 21, and it's a vision of new creation, everything being Eden-like, exactly the way God would have it to be. So let's look at this passage, final passage of the day, chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea, remember the sea? That's where the beast came from. Well, John says the, the sea is no more. And all this, all this is symbolic. It means the beast and everything, everything beast-like is done away with. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So just again, notice the city of God is coming from heaven to earth. It's not about us leaving earth and flying out into outer space. Heaven is coming to earth. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. Hallelujah. This is a picture of what's going to happen at the very end. This is where everything's driving towards. And this is the reward of all of those who follow the Lamb, who worship the Lamb and live obedient and allegiance unto King Jesus. The reward is new heavens, new earth, dwelling with God on earth for all of eternity, exactly the way it ought to be. And then finally in chapter 22, we see the description of a river of life flowing through that city, a river that's streaming with life, that covers the earth. And finally, Jesus says, I am coming soon, so get ready. So when is Jesus coming? Soon. Leave it at that. He's coming soon. In the meantime, we are to worship and follow the Lamb in His Calvary way. I'm going to close with this story. I'm going to close with this story. I am a lifelong, die-hard fan of the New Orleans Saints. You know, I just talk about a lamb being slain. You know, the Rams, sounds a lot like the Rams to me. Saints are playing the Rams later this year. Um, anyway, but I'm a big, lifelong, diehard fan of the New Orleans Saints. I've got to be honest, for most of my life, that has caused a lot of pain and suffering for me. 
because the Saints historically have not been a very good team. And everything changed. 2009, the Saints have a miracle season, and they get to the Super Bowl. Early February 2010, the Saints are finally in the Super Bowl. I never dreamed it could happen. But they're in their Super Bowl against the Indianapolis Colts. And I'm pretty anxious about this game. I knew the Saints were good, but I knew the Colts were also really good. They were 14-2 and two that year. They got Peyton Manning, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. Reggie Wayne, both from New Orleans, by the way. Um, <laughs> Dwight Freeney. Dallas Clark. I mean, they were, they were stocked. So I was worried about this game. Like, this is not going to be easy. And so I invited my brother to my house to watch the Super Bowl that evening with me. I didn't want any of these fair-weather Saints fans in my church. I, I, I just wanted to get away from them. It's just me and my brother. My brother had been through thick and thin with the Saints. And so it was just going to be me and him. And so Darren and I, we were in our living room. Do you remember that, Kerry? We were in our living room. We are watching the Saints play the Colts in the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 44. And I got to be honest, man, the game didn't start out that great. Saints couldn't move the ball. They're dropping passes, stupid penalties, blown assignments. The Colts are driving down the field. Uh, by halftime, it was like, man, we're down considerably, several points, and the Colts get the ball in the second half. This is not a good scenario. This is not the way I wanted this game to go down. So there's a lot of fear, a lot of worry and anxiety. But then, if you remember that game, the second half starts with a surprise onside kick. And the Saints recover the onside kick, go right down the field, score a touchdown. They get a couple defensive stops. They score another touchdown, get a two-point conversion. Now, they're up ahead. In the middle of the fourth quarter, they are beating the Colts by one touchdown. But Peyton Manning's got the ball. And he's got plenty of time. And the Colts, once again, are driving down the field. But there comes a play. And I thought about showing it on the screen, but I felt, felt like, no, nah, that's overkill. <laughs> but there's a play where Peyton Manning's in the shotgun, and he calls Reggie Wayne into motion. And Reggie Wayne goes from the far end of the field. He motions to the slot. And the Saints cornerback, a guy named Tracy Porter, he had watched enough film that year to where he recognized what was about to happen. He had seen them do this before in this exact formation with this same motion. And Tracy Porter knew every time Reggie Wayne comes into motion from the end to the slot, he runs a little stick route. And so he knew exactly what was going to happen. Peyton Manning calls for the snap. He doesn't even look. He throws it right to Reggie Wayne. Tracy Porter jumps the pass, intercepts it, takes it to the house, seals the game, and the Saints win for two touchdowns and beat the Colts. I got goosebumps right now talking about it. <laughs> I know you guys are all exhilarated with me, but. So they won the game. Now here's the thing. Today I own a copy of this game. Of course I do. But I've got it on DVD. And, and you know, I'm not crazy. I don't watch it all the time. Like no more than once a week. But. <laughs> But every so often, I will sit down and I'll rewatch that game just for the enjoyment of it. And when I watch it today, I see all of the same mistakes that they make. I see the drop passes. I see the lousy penalties. I see the blown assignments and just some of the stupidity that takes place. And I'm watching that game, but now I don't have any anxiety at all. 
all that, all that fear is gone. I don't worry for one second. Why? Because I know the outcome. I know how this thing ends. And I'm watching it from that perspective. That's what the book of Revelation is. It's the game film of all of world history summed up and it's giving you the outcome that our lamb, not only is the lamb going to conquer, he's already conquered. And our victory is secure. Therefore, no matter how dark and chaotic your own life gets, and no matter how crazy and insane our culture may get and circumstances in the world may get, we don't have to be reactive. We don't have to be filled with rage, we don't, which really is fear in disguise. We don't have to operate out of an anxious soul. We can just simply be wise, content, calm, and unafraid because the saints win in the end. The Lamb's victorious. Stand with me this morning. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.